0: I was doing so well, everyone. And then I was told I was on mute. But nonetheless, welcome. And uh, thank you for coming to tonight's Fireside Chat. Uh, Tonight, we have two great books to talk about with you and two wonderful scholars and two tales of women wronged. Um, I really look forward to sharing these books with you. We'll be hearing from Julie Miller about her book, Cry of Murder on Broadway, um, and from Patricia Miller, they are not related, uh, about her book, um, Bringing Down the Colonel: A Sex Scandal of the Gilded Age. Let me just quickly give you uh, a little bio of them, and then I will hand over the camera to them, hand over the microphone to them so we can move forward. Um, Julie Miller uh, earned her doctorate in US history at the Graduate Center of the City of University of New York back in 2003. She taught in the history department at Hunter College before moving to Washington, DC. Her first book was Abandoned, Foundlings in 19th Century New York City. Her second book, um, Cry of Murder on Broadway, A Woman's Ruin and Revenge in Old New York, was published by the Three Hills imprint of Cornell University Press in October, 2020. It was begun with a Bernard and Irene Schwartz postdoctoral fellowship from the New York Historical Society in 2006 and 2007. She is the curator of early American manuscripts at the Library of Congress. And her chapter, British Beginnings in the Two Georges, Parallel Lives and an Age of Revolution, is forthcoming. Uh, Julie also asks that we make sure we mention that this book was written entirely this book, Cry of Murder, was written out entirely outside of her responsibilities at the Library of Congress and does not reflect the library's views. Patricia Miller is an award-winning Journal uh, is an award-winning author and journalist whose fascination with the untold stories of women led her on a 10-year journey to unearth the story of the Breckenridge-Pollard scandal. Her work on the interplay of politics and sexual morality has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Salon, The Nation, Huffington Post, and Ms. Magazine. She received a master's degree in journalism from New York University and is the editor of Encyclopedia Virginia. Welcome, Julie and Patricia, and thank you for joining us for our fireside chat.
1: Thank you very much. Okay, so our books are about two 19th century American women, Amelia Norman and Madeline Pollard, who were each of which was was at the center of a much publicized trial. Amelia Norman in 1844 and Madeline Pollard 50 years later in 1894. They had a, a bunch of things in common. They each had to make a living on her own at a time of economic depression, each got involved with the wrong man. And through their lives, it's possible to learn something about the lives of women at two ends of the 19th century. And what we're going to do first is we're going to just talk about these women and who they were. And I'm just going to ask Patty, who was Madeline Pollard? And how did she get herself into such trouble?
2: Madeline Pollard, as I say in my book, was a kind of a poor nobody from Kentucky. She um, she was born right after the Civil War or right, depending on the date she gave, maybe right towards the end of the Civil War. Um, And she came from a family that had never been well off, and her father passed away when she was 12, which put her in a very disadvantaged class of young women in that era. Um, And she came to DC from Kentucky in about 1888 under somewhat mysterious circumstances, but very quickly found her way into the kind of um, Southern social circles of Washington and started showing up at fancy parties and having her dresses commented on. She did some writing for the Washington Post. So she was kind of along around the edges of Southern high society in Washington, pretty living a pretty quiet, supposedly respectable life. She really skyrocketed to national attention in 1894 when she sued William Campbell Preston Breckinridge, who was at the time an exceptionally well-known politician from a very well-known Kentucky political family. His uh, grandfather had been Jefferson's attorney general. His father was a nationally known Presbyterian minister. His cousin was John Cable Breckinridge, the vice president and Confederate secretary of war. So she she, all of a sudden is linked to him in the newspapers because she sues him for breach of promise to marry, which was, if people aren't familiar with that, a, a 19th century legal code or really predated even the 19th century that allowed you to sue a man for a broken engagement. She sued him saying he had promised to marry her, and he had married another more socially prominent woman several months earlier. That would have been pretty scandalous for the day. Breckenridge was well known, but what made it super scandalous was that she said they had been having an affair for almost the past 10 years and she had had two children with him. And she went public with that information because she wanted to hold him to account. Why should she be ruined by this uh, affair and not end up married and he can kind of walk away from her and marry somebody else. And that was just something that confounded people, that a woman would advertise her shame and her downfall publicly. Um, and that brought her to national attention. The trial lasted for five weeks in the spring of 1894. And it was really a national fascination, front page of the Times and the Post and all the DC papers. Um, and as you said, there was a crippling financial depression. The panic of 1893 had happened the previous year. And I think for that time and day, you know, it was a uh, it was fodder, like we look at celebrities now, it was a celebrity trial. The Breckenridge family was well known. So it just becomes this national obsession, uh, people wanting to know who this woman is and seeing if she'll actually take the stand and if um, she would dare hold a man like Breckinridge to account.
1: Thanks. So So Amelia Norman, um, our other protagonist, was almost two generations older than Madeline Pollard, Um, but her circumstances were somewhat similar. She was born on a farm in New Jersey in around 1818, and she was part of a wave of rural to urban migration that took place in the first half of the 19th century. And like most young people who came to cities, um, she went to cities because that's where there was work. And for most young women went to work as domestic servants, and that's what she did. And she worked for a family who owned a soap factory, and they had been neighbors of her in Sparta, New Jersey, where she was from, and they brought her with her to New York City. And there was in the 19th century, there were there were what were called panics, in other words, financial crashes approximately every 20 years. So Patty was just telling you about the one in 1893. There was one in 1837, and it resulted in a depression that lasted several several years, and there was a tremendous amount of turmoil as a result of that, and the family evidently lost their soap factory, the family that Emily Norman worked for, and she then entered into a period of instability, and she had a series of jobs, and it was during that period that she met a man named Henry Ballard. Now, Henry Ballard... Um, was born in Boston. He he grew up in a family that owned dry goods businesses in downtown Boston. Um, and he was, at a very young age, he was a partner in a dry goods company. And he came to New York. He had already had a mistress in Philadelphia who he brought with him to New York when he came to New York as a young man. And he set her up in New York. Um, and he lived in the Astor House Hotel. And I just want to show you what the Astor House Hotel looked like. This is it. This is actually from a map at the Library of Congress. And it it was built in the late 1830s and he moved into it just as soon as it was finished. And it was the newest, fanciest, biggest, most luxurious hotel in the city. And it was opposite City Hall Park. It was opposite City Hall. And you could see its large columns in front. Um, So Amelia Norman met Henry Ballard and rather like Madeline Pollard and Breckenridge. She became his mistress. She had several abortions. She had at least one living child with him in the summer or fall of 1842. And soon after she had the child, Ballard left her. He abandoned her. And when he came back to the city about a year later, she went to him and she asked him for support. And he said to her very insultingly, you can go get your living like other prostitutes do. And it was in the aftermath of that experience that she followed him to the Astor House where he was going to eat. At that point, he no longer lived in the Astor House. He actually lived down the street, but he apparently still ate there and had a big dining room. And she walked up the steps that you can see there in between those two columns. She actually stood behind one of the columns. And when he came up the steps, she emerged rather dramatically and she stabbed him. She didn't kill him, but she was, there was a trial the following January Um, And the trial was, you know, in the 18, this is 1844, New York City was the home of the Penny Press starting in the early 1830s. And these newspapers, particularly James Gordon Bennett's Herald, were all over this story. Um, The the reporters um, came to the trial every single day. um, And one of the challenges of, of doing research for this was because I have different accounts from the different papers each day of what happened, where they report things slightly differently, some some more completely than others. So I had to sort of figure out, you know, exactly what was going on. It wasn't always one hundred percent possible. So what happened at the trial was she attracted a couple of supporters. One of them was Lydia Maria Child, who I'll show you. Oops, this is Lydia Maria Child. She was an author and a prominent abolitionist, and she took. Amelia Norman under her wing. Um, Lydia Child is somewhat more famous for doing the same thing later on with Harry Jacobs, the escaped slave, and later John Brown, the abolitionist. But here earlier in 1844, well before the Civil War, she's behaving this way with Amelia Norman, and she kind of adopted her as a cause. And one of the things that she felt was that Amelia Norman was an example of everything that was wrong with the condition of women. That, in other words, her lack of education, her lack of opportunity, her corralling into a very limited job market and so on, basically set her up for this kind of a situation. And the the depression created a situation where women just had, poor women, poor unmarried women just had very few economic opportunities compared to somebody like Henry Ballard. So that was one of her champions. When she was in jail in the tombs, she met two very different champions. This is one of them. This is Mike Walsh, posing as a pugilist. He was a newspaper editor. He editor, edited a paper called The Subterranean. And he was also a politician who favored the the, um, the um, cause of a working man. And she met George Wilkes. This is a wonderful photograph from the Library of Congress, very, very clear. Um, and he also was a journalist, and similarly, they, Wil- Wil- Wilkes and Walsh were friends until they had a Falling Out, but they were friends, they were both journalists, both saw themselves as friends of the working man. He later reported on the Paris Commune, for example, and he wrote a book while he was in jail at the tombs called Mysteries of the Tombs that was, that was modeled roughly on Eugene Sue's Mysteries of Paris, and Mysteries of Paris was wildly popular, it was a novel, And it arrived in New York just as Amelia Norman's story was unfolding. The translation, the English translation, arrived in New York. And um, people became somewhat confused about uh, who was Amelia Norman and who was the, the protagonist of Mysteries of Paris. And both Walsh and Wilkes wrote about Norman in their respective books, Walsh and the Subterranean, and Wilkes in Mysteries of the Tombs. And another supporter group of supporters that she gained was a group called the American Female Moral Moral Reform Society. And since the 1830s, they had been agitating to criminalize seduction. Now, what did that mean? There was a common law um, tort of seduction, which meant that if a woman was seduced by a man, then her father or master could claim damages on the base of his loss of her services so this was obviously a very antiquated law by the first half of the 19th century um and by the first half of the 19th century there there were a couple and I'll talk about this a little more later but there were a couple of efforts to change this and the the, the American Female Moral Society was one group that was trying to do this and they were trying to criminalize seduction so as soon as they heard of Norman's trial they immediately were on the case and they they um wrote about her as an example of what could go wrong when uh, seduction was not a criminal matter. So finally, what happened was the trial met for a week. It was enormously popular. People packed the courtroom and spilled out into the street. The jury met, for and after less than 10 minutes, they acquitted her. It was essentially a case of jury nullification. So that's who these two people were. And I just thought I would ask you, our next question really is, why do these stories matter? Do you want to talk a little bit about why, what 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 about Madeline Pollard's story matters?
2: Oh, you know, I think truly really what what matters about Madeline Pollard's story is it it happens right at a moment where women are really entering the workforce for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, there you go. That's Madeline Pollard, and she um, she becomes a bit of an avatar for these. Working women, there's a huge increase in secretarial work in the country around then. The typewriter's been invented, stenography's been invented. You know, we think we live with all these cutting edge things, but in those days, that was cutting edge technology. Um, and it created a tremendous demand for educated office workers, educated meaning people with a high school education and maybe some business school. Um, and these women find themselves going into these workplaces that formerly had no women in them. And the world was so, it's hard for us to imagine how sex segregated it was at the time, but when women were first brought into some of the departments in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War, because men were off at the war, the um, they were they were kicked out because people thought it was improper for women to be in an office with men. They, there was a whole protocol around the kind of men you could be around. You could be around your relatives. You could be around men you had been properly introduced to under appropriate circumstances, meaning chaperoned, but for women to be in an office with men, they didn't know that they might be under some obligation to, um, is became a very, uh, Difficult idea for society to process at that time. And it was really a, a bit of a push and pull. Women needed these jobs. They had the education. There had been this terrible financial depression. And again and again, you hear these women saying, My father lost his job. My brother lost his job. I needed to get an office job. And yet society does not approve of them mixing with men because that will ruin their reputation. So Madeline comes along. She's not a saint. She's not looking to make a social difference, particularly. But she decides to sue uh, Breckenridge basically for revenge because she doesn't like the fact that much like Norman, she'd been cast aside when she was inconvenient. So she becomes, for women, a rallying cry that we we want to be going to the workplace and we want to know that we can uh, make a, a, a entrance into the world without being called into account, without being called a fallen woman. Um, and it's 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 sad in some ways. Norman's story happens at the beginning of a process where the sexual purity of women is becoming a big deal. As we leave the agrarian society, as the country becomes industrialized and urbanized, there really is no need to have eight or 12 kids who can work your farm. And there has to be a new way to basically control sexual activity in young adults. Used to be if young adults liked each other and they hooked up and they had a baby, that was not a bad thing. They would just get married, preferably before the baby came and start a life of being farmers or working on a farm and having many children. By 1893, 1894, people don't need all those kids and they don't need to get married very young. So it's on women. Sometime around Amelia Norman's time and between Madeline Pollard's time, it becomes on women to ensure their own purity and keep men away and be very segregated from the male world in order that they their purity can be assured upon marriage. It is a way to to control fertility and to control sexual activity, basically. But that runs head first into this world of women now need to go into the world. And if they need to go into the world, how is their purity gonna be assured? How are people gonna know they're a good woman? So that Madeline kind of drops her little bomb into the middle of all that. And the trial really becomes Uh, a referendum on the question of, does a woman need to have a higher standard of sexual morality than men do? And Madeline Pollard, her point and the point that her lawyers, who were very good and made it very capably, was why should she be held accountable for something? Why should she lose her position in society if Breckenridge doesn't lose his position in society? And to give some perspective on that, about 13, 12 years before a woman had sued a senator Um, under a very similar circumstance where she said we were together, we were having an affair, he promised he'd marry me. She even had letters attesting that he would marry her. And that is legally under the law, that was a breach of contract. That's how that law was read, that if a man promised to marry you and then pulled back on that, he would ruin your reputation, he would ruin your way to make a living, which was marriage for most women. And so therefore he needed to be held accountable. She was laughed out of the courtroom. Basically, they said, because you are a harlot, because you are a fallen woman, you have no right to this court's consideration. Society cannot allow you to come into this courtroom because you're a bad woman. The man, there was no question, he was he could go into the courtroom while he wanted. So what Madeline Pollard argued and what her lawyers argued was that she needed to be treated the same as Breckenridge, that if she, he was in the wrong, but he was allowed to have the consideration of the court. If he would be covered by the law, then she as well should be covered by breach of promise law. She didn't do anything outside of the bounds of that law. She claimed she'd been faithful to him. She gave up both of her children at his request and that she deserved the consideration of any other woman in a breach of promise suit legally. Um, and that was a revolutionary claim at the time. It was, again, it's hard to understand how being a ruined woman, a fallen woman who's illicit sexual activity became public, debarred you from a job, it debarred you from living in a nice boarding house, from going to a nice church, every facet of society would be closed to you. So she was really challenging that idea that there was a sexual double standard and that the women should be held to this incredibly high standard of purity outside of marriage and before marriage. Um, And People were fascinated that she would take the stand and say words like pregnant. You know, she said, yes, I got pregnant. And people were like, Like, no one had ever done that before. No one had ever spoken those words in a trial. There was almost no women in the courtroom. Everyone in the courtroom were men. Um, except her witnesses. When women tried to come and watch, they were kicked out because it was not appropriate for women to be in a courtroom talking about this kind of thing. So the barriers that she faced were really kind of multifaceted and almost insurmountable. Um, It was an all-male jury. There were no women on juries because women obviously didn't have the vote and were not considered full citizens. Um, They had, it was a five-week trial. There was a lot of not just newspaper coverage, but all the opinion journals of the day and all the editorials of the day weighed in on this because they knew we were really at this kind of change point for women. And this said a lot about how women were going to go into the world moving forward. The jury got the case late on a Saturday afternoon after about a five week trial and only took about an hour and a half, two hours to reach a verdict. And they found for her, they awarded her $15,000. She had sued for 50, which was still a significant amount of money in those days. Um, she knew she'd probably never get it from Breckenridge. He was very uh, prominent, but always kind of broke. And so the point was never to get the money. It was really to make a point that she should be treated the same way Breckenridge should be under the law, and that women shouldn't have this literally scarlet letter on them for having uh, illicit sexual activity. And I think the reverberations of that, you can see even by the early 1900s, by I think 1914, it's famously declared sex o'clock in America. It really, much as Clinton's trial, Bill Clinton, the Monica Lewinsky uh, incident, had us talking about a lot of things like oral sex publicly that had not been discussed publicly. Her trial allowed people to talk about these issues. What does it mean for a woman to be pure? What does it mean for a woman to work outside the home with men she doesn't know? Can there be professional relationships that don't look at women as purely sexual objects and purely things to be preserved for their chastity? Um, and so that I think that moment in history just became a, a turning point for women. In some ways, not widely recognized, but uh, the people at the time seemed to recognize they were really in the midst of a sea change.
1: So you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the really important differences between Amelia Norman and Madeline Pollard. You're able to know what Madeline Pollard's motivations were because she spoke for herself. She wrote letters um and you you know what she was doing and why she was doing it <clears throat> Amelia Norman was was not literate she was not able to write so the only words that are preserved or you know in the record are things that other people reported her saying for their own purposes so one of the questions i had when i started working on this was how how do people use the stories of other people to promote their causes so in other words Madeline, i mean she, Amelia Nortman walked up the steps of the Astor House Hotel and stabbed Henry Ballard. And she wasn't, I'm pretty certain, thinking consciously about the coming movement for women's rights. But what I came to realize the more I read about this is that I I came to feel that she did, in fact, embody the rage that the early women's rights leaders of the women's rights movement felt. And just to give you a sense of this, Lydia Maria Child, who was her champion, when when speaking about the seduction tort, and she Lydia Maria Child, I had a column called Letters from New York, and she devoted one of these columns to Amelia Norman's story. And she wrote, in, in that column she wrote about the seduction tort, tort and she wrote, um, "What is the redress for a broken heart, blighted reputation, the deserted of, desertion of friends, etc.? Why the woman must acknowledge herself to be the servant of somebody." who may claim wages for lost time. With indignation and scorn, I appeal to common sense and common justice against this miserable legal fiction. It is a standing insult to womankind, and had we not been the slaves we are deemed in law, we would rise up en masse in majesty of moral power and sweep that contemptible assault from the statute book. So that, that's pretty dramatic, actually. And it, and I think when Norman was acting, I think in it's hard to know exactly what she was thinking, but Certainly, she had been put in a position as a result of an economy that didn't support her, uh, an education system that didn't include her, you know, uh, a sexual double standard that was made it possible for a man to just throw her out when he was done with her. Um, and, you know, she was furious about that. And the far more articulate leaders of the women's rights movement, such as Child, or, who was a somewhat ambivalent participant in the women's rights movement, but certainly Elizabeth Cady Stan. They had words for that, and they could express it. Now, as far as what the what the result was, um, the, the the as I mentioned before, there were two uh, um, changes in the seduction tort that partly had to do with Norman's trial. One was that what I mentioned before, the American Female Guardian Society had led this long campaign to criminalize seduction in New York, and in 1848 they succeeded in getting the New York. New York um, legislature to pass a law actually criminalizing seduction. And it's worth remembering that in April, 1848, New York passed its Married Women's Property Act, which is a far better known law. And that summer was the Seneca Falls Convention, also in New York. These things are all taking place in New York. And I think that um, we have forgotten how complex the early movement for women's rights was and have tended to remember the things that have succeeded and the concept concept of seduction and law is so foreign to us that we've basically forgotten that it existed. But I think it's worth remembering the time and place that produced the changes that women live with today. You know, that it was in fact a complicated sort of royal of events, not not a, a single movement for the vote and nothing else. The the early leaders of the women's rights movement actually have a, a whole bunch of goals. Um, the other thing that happened was that Norman's lawyer, David Graham, Jr., um, he, she had several lawyers, but he was the lead lawyer. Um, he, he actually, um, at her trial, he, he made a, a case against the seduction court, and he became a member of a committee to revise New York's laws. And in that committee, there was a section in, in, the, in, the, in the resulting code of law, which was called the field code there was a, a section called Section 604, which I have the text of, but it's extremely brief. What it said was, that it gave a woman the right to sue on her own behalf. So the entire text reads, an unmarried female may prosecute as plaintiff in action for her own seduction and recover damages. So basically, when Lydia Maria Child suggested that you know um, the stat, the statute should be thrown out, in fact, that is what happened. And it appears that Amelia Norman's lawyer was, was one of the uh, leaders of the movement to make that happen. The irony of the situation is that the field code, which was the code of laws that this commission on Pet practice and pleading in New York produced, was adopted either in whole or in part by various states. But New York, in fact, did not adopt Section 604. So even though it originated in New York, um, it didn't actually take hold there. But so again, I think You know, when you think about why Amelia Norman is important, um, I think because she reminds us of the complexity of the moment that produced the movement for women's rights. And one of the people who said that actually was Margaret Fuller in um, Women of the Nineteenth Century. She she said of Norman's trial, she said, this will be important. And she was right. I think she was right. And I should say, as I was writing this book, the Me Too movement exploded, which was quite interesting, you know, to be writing about this in that context. So I think one of the questions that we had about the also was how were these two remembered and how were they forgotten? Do you want to talk a
2: little bit about that in relation
1: to Madeline Pollard?
2: Well, I think it's safe to say Madeline Pollard was completely forgotten. I when I stumbled across this trial, uh, I had never heard of it. I had not. I was maybe very vaguely aware of the Breckenridge family was not very aware of them, but had never heard of Madeline Pollard. Had never heard of this trial. Was so surprised when I saw front page coverage and op-eds and opinion pieces from the leading lights of the day talking about her um and I think what happened is all too often in history things that deal with especially women and sex with what we would call a scandal oh it's just a scandal um and this was certainly scandalous but for the people of that day, it was also an important kind of uh, movement into, you know, a, a, an era of social change, and the fact that she was forgotten talks largely to who writes history. Um, this happened in 1894. And most historians until, uh, as we know, until well into the 20th century, well into the 1970s, um, were men. And women's history, not only wasn't women's history considered something that was that different than you know? Women weren't doing history. You have Thomas Jefferson, you have Washington. You know what do you need women for? Um, women's history wasn't that important. But also, I think the history of sexuality. When you would look now at the history of the gay rights movement, um, the history of sexuality was just kind of pushed in a corner. And this has those two elements in it. And you know, the, the place you can find short recaps of this trial are in like compendiums of sex scandals and political scandals. And it was kind of put in that bucket of, oh, this was a sex scandal. Um, and I think you really need to interrogate these scandals and you know, what do they say about the time? What was this woman really up to? Um, she was certainly an imperfect heroine, which is kind of why I love her, uh, but she also was a really brave woman in her own way to just stand up with almost no support. Um, unlike Norman, uh, a lot of the campaigners for um, what they called in those days the, you know, the uh, uh, sexual continence or a single standard of morality between men and women or the social purity movement, um, they tried to, to champion her. They tried to take her up. They tried to make her part of their own. And she didn't want any part of it. She said, That's that's not me. I don't, I don't want to do that. She was a southerner really at heart. And she didn't really believe in social movement. She wasn't really a fan of the federal government. She was very much a product of her place and time, which was the, which was the South. Um, And she didn't have that sense that she was contributing to something, but that doesn't mean that she didn't contribute to something in her, in her own way, I think.
1: So somewhat similarly to Pollard, Norman appears today in books about women murderers, for example, or prostitution, she's usually mentioned kind of fleetingly and sometimes a little inaccurately, which is understandable because the record is a little hard to pick through. But her, she was in fact remembered for quite a long time into the nineteenth century. Um, Lydia Maria Child used her story, p- bits and pieces of her story, in her own fiction, and she made her the she featured her in one of her columns. Um, She was, she appeared in the newspaper. She was mentioned in the newspaper. She was made into a fictional character in a novel by George Thompson called The Countess. But I think even more interestingly than any of those is um, there in the 19th century, there were two famous cases where men killed their wives lovers. One was the Sickles case and one was the McFarland case. And David Graham, who had been Norman's lawyer, her lead lawyer, he had a brother, John Graham, who was also a lawyer. And David Graham died very young. He died in 1852 when he was 1844. But John Graham lived well into the 19th century and he defended both Sickles and McFarland. And at both of those trials, he mentioned Norman. So in the Sickles case, Sickles was a Congressman who killed Francis Barton Key, who was the district attorney in Washington, DC. And he killed his wife's lover very publicly in Lafayette Square. So it's a little bit like the Norman case in a way. And at the trial, John Graham raised Norman, who we expected people to have heard of. And he said that both Sickles and Norman had acted in obedience to the instincts of our natures. In other words, who could blame them for doing what they did, which is interesting. And in doing that, he sort of classes Norman with a man whose honor has been challenged. So that's interesting. And then as late as 1870, he represented Daniel McFarland, and McFarland also killed his wife's lover. Um, And in in this case, again, he told Amelia Norman's story, and he reported that at the the trial, the women attending the trial listened to Norman's story with what he describes as indescribable interest. So Norman's story lasted for quite a long time time and before it was forgotten it was it it captured the imagination in a significant way so one of the questions that i wanted to ask you patty actually was that you know we're talking about these women who really went through these terrible experiences and we're saying here they are their examples of what women had to put up within their time but there are other women in our stories and one of the really interesting women in your book is book, breckenridge and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about her and describe why she, who was also close to Willie Breckinridge, turned out so differently. And you have a picture of her here, which I'll show.
2: So Vanessa Breckinridge, first of all, she has a great name. She went by NISPA with her family, which is a little easier to say. Um, Nisma Breckinridge was um C- William Campbell Breckinridge's um second oldest child and second oldest daughter. She was born after he returned from the war. He fought for the Confederacy. Uh, in the Civil War. Some of his um, his brother fought for the Union, like many Kentucky families, their family split in the war. Um, and she was born when he returned from the war. He called her his peace baby, and he just adored her. They had uh, The Breckham just had five living children, and she was his favorite, um, not the least because she was the most brilliant um, of his children. It was a family well known for their intellectual brilliance and their public oratory, but his um, his oldest son was a bit of a wastrel and a drunkard who, as he said, he sleeps all day. He goes to ride with some women in the afternoon and he drinks all night. Um, his other son, Deshaies, was a, a budding lawyer, but was also a bit of a young man about town. Um, he was engaged to quite a few women in Washington, D.C., Uh, when his father was a congressman and just very popular with the ladies. She was the most serious of the Breckenridge children and by far the most brilliant uh, of the Breckenridge children. And Breckenridge, it's it's so interesting to write about someone like him because on one hand he abandons Madeline Pollard, he marries somebody else, and then he tries to pretend like this long-term affair just didn't happen. They had a nine-year companionable relationship. They traveled together. She had two children by him. Uh, They shared letters. He gave her his speeches to read. And yet when push came to shove, he just he threw her over like not only had it meant nothing, which she knew it had meant something, but then tried to pretend in the trial like she was chasing him around and it was all on her that he had not been pursuing her quite avidly, which she had been, which they do prove they get letters to prove that. So it's, you know, it's easy to make him into the bad guy. And then you meet his daughter, who's just brilliant and who he just doted on and really treated almost like a son. She would say, I learned my letters on the back of his law books. Her mother was a little unwell. She was never super strong. So he would just bring her to the law office and set her up in the corner with some law books. And she would do her letters and things like that. She, he took her to court more than once. So she was, you know, a, a very close companion to her father, probably the in their family, they were the closest in the family. Um, and he really went out of his a way to find exceptional opportunities for her. He was on the board of what was then Kentucky A&M, which eventually became Kentucky University. No women were allowed to be admitted. He was on the board. He used his clout on the board to get her admitted into college. Uh, she went to college. She was not allowed to get a degree, just a certificate, but she did go to college in Kentucky and then decided that really wasn't enough she really wanted more of a challenge and the seven sisters colleges colleges that were not only just for women but really provided an education that was very much on par with the education a young man would get and would award a degree were just opening up and she heard about Wesleyan, and she said that sounds like a place for me and her father knew the founder or the president of the college And he, you know, a little tiny bit begrudgingly, but not very much, you know, sends her off to college, sends her up to Boston to go to college. Um, The family came and visited her at school every year. They were so proud of her for going to college. She was the class president three times. She did um, very well in math. She ended up studying math. And he really just encouraged her every step of the way to be exceptional. Um, The one thing he didn't want her to do because it meant going into the courtroom, whereas I think where he said he quoted somebody, all the nastiness of the world comes. He didn't want her to be a lawyer. And that's the one thing she really wanted to be was a lawyer. She not only wanted to follow in his footsteps, but she had the the mind of a lawyer and the mind of a social scientist. She was interested in the big problems in society, how to solve them. Um, So after the trial, she finally finds a way to Chicago to go to the University of Chicago. She gets a fellowship that a man had turned down. It was really just turned on a little bit of blind luck that she was able to go to Chicago. She becomes the first woman to be granted a law degree from the University of Chicago, and then also gets her PhD in political science from the University of Chicago and becomes one of the first generation of really pioneering women. Um, she worked with Jane Addams at Hull House. She called herself a social worker, but she was very much a social scientist. She was on one hand theorizing about ways to do things like alleviate poverty and promote the interests of women and promote the interest of immigrants and promote the interests of Black people in the, the slums of Chicago. And on the other hand she was going out and practicing this as well and that was a there was a group of women who were doing that in the 1910s that were really an exceptional part of the progressive movement she wrote about the role of women in society extensively she um really tried to quantify the things that were holding women back and talked about the need to provide child care for women um, and she was such an exceptional both teacher and practitioner that and she she took on a very progressive ideology, unlike her father who was a, a conservative. Um, and by her teaching is so influential that when the depression, the Great Depression happens, many of the people who end up filling the um, social service agencies were people who had been trained by her at the University of Chicago. So she really leaves this very long tail of progressivism. And when she dies, uh, I think she dies in forty eight or. Portier, I believe. When she passes away, you know, the New York Times just gives her this glowing op-ed just how influential she had been and how many women owed their careers to her because she had been really the first. Um, when you think about someone like her, the distance she traveled from being born in Kentucky to a father who was a Confederate in 1866 to um, was the first woman to be appointed on an international body by FDR at the end of her life. She really traveled an incredible distance in her
1: lifetime. Yeah, I was just telling Patty before we have her papers at the Library of Congress. She's really a wonderful, fascinating figure. In in my book, the the other woman whose life is something of a counterpoint to Amelia Normans is Lydia Maria Child, who was her champion. And Lydia Maria Maria Child is obviously much more well known. She was born in 182. And when she was very young, she was a novelist. She was she was, you know, she was a contemporary of uh, novels of James Fenimore Cooper. You know, she was one of the really first early American novelists, and her novels are very important. And she wrote a whole lot of advice books, household advice books. And there was a certain irony to that because she never really had much of a household herself. So she wrote all kinds of books, all kinds of books with advice about how to, you know, use bear's grease for things and stuff like that. I mean, they're they're fun to read now, actually. And she became an abolitionist, a very committed abolitionist and a, a, a protege of William Lloyd Garrison in, in the 1830s at a time when it was, it could be quite dangerous to be an abolitionist. And there's a there's a wonderful um, anecdote of her. I think it was Whittier or somebody who wrote a, a eulogy of her after her death describing how she stood up to a mob in Boston, which, you know, it's just incredible if you think about it. Um, she had... She was a very complicated figure. She wrote about women and women's rights. She's sometimes classified as a conservative, but I think she's much more complicated than that. I think that she, um, her anger about the plight of women is tremendous. And one of the things I discovered is that there are two versions of the letter she wrote about, uh, the letter from New York that she wrote about Amelia Norman, one of which contained very inflammatory passages and it was published twice, once in the Boston Courier and once in the National Anti-Slavery Standard. And when it reappeared in the Standard with which she had a, a, a relationship, she had been the editor, but she wasn't the editor anymore when it came out there. But her husband was sort of nominally. Um, those very angry passages had been cut probably, I think, by her. So she, she, you know, she kind of understood the need to kind of temper her um her anger and she did that at that time because when she became an abolitionist she lost readers in other words people who were interested in reading books like flowers for children and advice on how to make pies were a little shocked when she became a very active abolitionist and by the 1840s she was looking to regain her readership so she was trying to kind of rein in her um her more inflammatory speech when she published her letters from New York into a book she left out the one about Amelia Norman. So she's a person she had a complicated marriage she married a man who she um, loved but who was useless you know he couldn't make a living and eventually what she did was she separated her money from him in because in law at this time women when women married and this had been true for quite a long time before their assets belonged to their husbands. The Married P- Women's Property Act, which I mentioned before, was a remedy to that. It was it allowed women to keep control of their property after they married. But um, she, because she was in this complicated marriage before that, she actually took, she separated her finances from her husband's. And when she came to New York, she came without him. So during the whole Amelia Norman thing, he is not there. He's sort of in and out, but he's he's not there. She's sort of more or less separated from him. And during that time, she had what I sort of call a chaste love affair with a much younger man. It's probably wasn't a real love affair, but she clearly did love him. And when he married somebody else, she was very shocked. So she was somebody who very much revered the household. And she felt that the home and domestic life was the pinnacle of existence, but she didn't achieve it in her own life. And she was very. very angry about the unequal treatment of women. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was younger than her, used some of her words at Seneca Falls, but she couldn't convince Lydia Maria Child to actually come to the Women's Rights Convention. So she's an interesting figure. She's a complicated figure, and she had this habit of adopting lost souls of whom Amelia Norman was one, and John Brown later on was another. So we could just talk and talk, but I think maybe is this the point where you want to have people ask questions if there are any?
0: Um, Well, thank you, Julie and Patricia both. Yeah, I think um, a number of questions have come in while you were talking. Um, A number of them uh, come from AJ Azirath. Please forgive me if I am mispronouncing your name because I certainly am. Uh, First question was, was Breckenridge funding Pollard's entry into DC society?
2: Well, yeah, that's a good question and it, it was one of the big issues of the scandal. He he never did ironically. He did not introduce her into polite society, but early on in the in the scandal, people were outraged that this man had introduced his mistress around polite society in Washington D.C. And a lot of the blowback up front on him Um, was because of that the irony was he did not she came to Washington without his knowledge because she was pregnant by him for a second time she had been in Lexington they were both from Lexington Kentucky and for the first few years of their affair she remained in Lexington he was in Washington with his family he'd been elected to Congress to his first term in Congress in 1884 and he brought his family to Washington so he would go home to see her and there were letters between them that came out during the trial. So we know it was a very passionate affair. He was really crazy about her. But twice she gets pregnant, and the second, the first time he sends her off to Cincinnati, where she has this baby. She lives in a, over a mattress store by herself, has this baby in an asylum for poor pregnant women, gives the baby up. It's a horrible experience. So when she gets pregnant a second time, she takes herself to Washington and shows up like, "Hi, honey, I'm here." Of course, his family's in Washington, so that does not work for him that well. Um, and the affair resumes after a while, and he does give her money over you know small bits of money here and there, but he never really supports her um, and he certainly never introduces her into polite society. What was so fascinating to piece together about her story her backstory was how much of this she did herself and the big question becomes of the trials who's paying for her lawyer she has really good lawyers and they seem to have an endless amount of money to spend on expenses they bring witnesses in from as far as colorado Um, and it turns out she has made a lot of friends among upper class women in washington herself completely independent of breckenridge um, and it was these women who really come to her aid during the trial and fund her lawyers and help her, you know, get the better of him. Huge class differences between these people, although she had put on the the attire and the airs of an upper class woman. She wasn't. Um, and she should have been really shunned by these women. That's how the script went. A woman who would predate on your husband, a fallen woman um, was shunned by other women. That was the whole point of shunning women. And instead they came to her aid. And I think the reason was that the world was changing and their daughters were going into the workplace and their nieces were going into the workplace. So she becomes, as I said, kind of an avatar for those women. So it's fascinating the question of where she got her money from um, and who supports her really becomes a, a central question of the trial.
0: I'm going to skip down um, to another question from the same person. Um, How do both cases relate to the Beecher-Tilton scandal?
1: Well, I mean, that was a different scandal. That was Henry Ward Beecher, who had an affair with one of his congregants. I'm not up on all the details of that.
2: Um, yeah, this and the the Breckenridge scandal was um, was quite a bit afterwards too. But I think that was very much in the public memory at the time. What that scandal had really shown people was that a man as well known and as well respected as Henry Ward Beecher could have been having an affair with somebody, and that kind of shocked Victorian society. Although he, when he the, he had a, he was on trial, I guess it was a civil trial. Um, He, and I'm not that up on it either, but um, he was acquitted, I believe, eventually, and went on to still have a very prominent place in society. So although scandalous, he was not ruined. Um, I think Breckenridge certainly got a much harder hit from his scandal. It ruined his political career. He was really a man on the rise. He was in his fifth term in Congress. Um, He was waiting for one of the senators from Kentucky to retire, uh, Joe Blackburn, so he could take his Senate seat. He had been talked about as a Speaker of the House, and he certainly had his eye on the White House. He had just everything that would take to, to go all the way to the White House, and this scandal destroyed his career. Um, so I think it shows how much it changed, even in the relatively short time, less than 20 years since the, uh, the Beatrice scandal.
0: Laura Parrish has a question. What did these women do after their trials?
1: Well, Norman, um, after the trial, Lydia Maria Child took Norman home with her. And in fact, Lydia Maria Child didn't have a home. She was actually rooming with the family of uh, a Quaker family, the Hopper family. So she just had a room, but she took Norman home with her. and, and, And within a couple of months, she found her a job in the country, I think in Massachusetts, working in a household. Um And that worked out for a little while. And then apparently the press discovered her there. So Norman tried to find her another job and apparently didn't succeed in doing it. In fact, she tried to get James Russell Lowell to take Norman with him and his wife on a trip to Europe, which actually failed because they weren't going when she thought they were. Um, And then it's not known what happened to her. It was very hard for me to find out what happened to her. I went to Sparta, New Jersey. I looked in the graveyard. I looked at a lot of genealogical sources, which are really not terribly accurate. But Child herself said late in life, she said that on a couple of occasions, she tried to help poor waifs and in none of those cases did it come out well. So I suspect that, um, you know, she didn't necessarily end up that well. But I would also imagine without knowing because i really don't know but that it's probable or possible that norman just wanted to get away from child because you know what i mentioned harry jacobs before harry jacobs was an escaped slave who wrote a memoir of her experiences right before the civil war and and um lydia maria child sort of took her in hand and said i'm gonna help you with this or i think i can't remember who oh i remember what it was jacobs uh publisher said it it wouldn't publish the book unless child sort of fronted it which child did and child in fact did help jacobs but she did it in a very heavy-handed manner in fact putting her own name on it and and the, one of the results of this is that it took years and years for it to be proven that in fact jacobs had written this book and not child so it's she could be a little overwhelming and i think it's possible that norman just wanted to not be famous you know to just go off and live her life and not not be
2: notorious uh, Madeline Pollard made out much better. Uh, Madeline Pollard was quick to tell people as the trial was going on that she knew she'd be ruined and outcast from society forever. But she ended up um, going abroad as the traveling companion to a wealthy woman, which was not uncommon in those days, um, and traveling abroad for a few years. And when she was in London, or um, she was living in Oxford first, when she was living in Oxford, she met a wealthy Irish widow and they became fast friends. Maybe they were more, I, I have no way to know one way or the other. There's, very there's scattered records mainly from her um, visa applications and passport applications you can kind of trace her um her afterlife after the trial um and she befriends this woman and lives with her as her companion for the rest of her life and lives in london and lives in paris and goes to egypt in the late 1820s and lives in paris in the early i'm sorry 1920s Uh, lives in paris um in the early 1920s she kind of ends up having a pretty fabulous life Um, and dies just six months after this woman does, right, I think in 1946. So she has a long life. She sees the world. Um, The notoriety from the scandal dies down once people kind of forget about it. So all in all, I mean, I think for what she had thought would happen to her, she ended up making out pretty well for herself.
0: uh, Cassandra Good asks, um, were there conservative women vocally opposing either of these women's causes or cases?
2: In the case of Breckenridge, there was definitely conservative women. Um, and and ironically, and well, not ironically, because we can see this happening somewhat nowadays, they were really... Um, advocating for the more traditional sense of morality which was madeline pollard stole someone's husband she was a bad woman you can't let bad woman like that out in society because they'll take everybody's husband um and everybody knows about women like that and that's why you can't let them um you know get a get free reign in society breckenridge's lawyers one of my favorite lines from the whole trial um he says if we if we find for this woman we're going to encourage every little strumpet to." drag their messy little mass of filth into the courtrooms. And that's how conservatives saw it. And certainly conservative women took that line and came out against her uh, very strongly.
1: Norman was actually supported by the American Female Moral Reform Society, who were opposed to, you know, everything that was fun, basically. Um, And so, in other words, they're, they're originally they they were they were moral reformers in other words they were people who opposed novel reading and dancing and things like that but they supported Norman because they felt that she had been wronged and because she was an example of why their plan to criminalize seduction was necessary.
0: And maybe I will close here with a perhaps a, a different kind of question. Do you know the background of Sophonisba's name? Mm-hmm. Um, asks.
2: It, it was a family name. It was her grandmother's name. Um, she told friends it Met keeper of her husband's secrets. I don't know if that's true or not. It's a very unusual name. I have hardly seen it any place else, but it was uh it was from her father's side of the family.
0: Well, it is eight o'clock. We've arrived at our hour. Um, I want to thank you both for really uh interesting presentations that have wo- were are woven together so well. Um there's probably something I can say here about your having the same last name and having these books that seem to be have have this sort of strong connection to each other, so just thank you for taking the time and thank you for sharing these books with us um, i I know it's it's been a tremendous moment to to learn um and to learn about these and we spend so much time in scandal you know in uh, so much time in scandals around morality these days that to hear about these gives us a broader sense of perspective on them. And, and so thank you for doing the research. Thank you for telling these stories. Thank you. For um, you. Wanted to just mention that our, our next fireside chat is going to be Liberty and Insanity in the Age of the American Revolution um, with Sarah Swedberg. And that's going to be next Thursday, May 27th at 7 o'clock. Um, also next week, next Tuesday, we're going to be having a historical happy hour. Um, we're going to be raising glasses to Breaking to Broken Glass, which I think is a, a glass ceiling reference with Anne Hampton Brewster and Charlotte Cushman, um, more great women of the 19th century. Um, that will be Tuesday the 25th at 7 o'clock. That's an event that's free for members and $10 for ten for non-members. And uh, there'll be recipes for cocktails that have to do with this. I don't know if we'll be breaking glasses, but it would be thematically appropriate. I hope everyone has a good evening. Again, thank you, uh, Patricia and Julie, for your presentations tonight. Thank you all for attending and for asking great questions. And uh, I'll look forward to seeing you again next week um, or some other time for another program from the Library Company. Thank you very much, and good night. Good night. Good night.